as you take your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 will be in verses 35 to 40 this morning. I started last week a mini-series, if you will, uh, because that's how my attention span lasts best in many portions. Um, M-I-N-I, not M-A-N-Y. If you don't understand the Arkansas twang there. Uh, I want us to continue in that series today of what it means to be made new. Made new to live in love and to walk in peace. And last week we talked about what it meant to be made new that Jesus doesn't just fix our lives from some temporary or uh, a, a brokenness that we have. So he doesn't just fix us, but rather we are dead in sin. He makes us alive to, to God, and in so he makes us new. That's what it says. We've been made alive with God in Christ Jesus. If any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And we're talking about what does it look like for us to live in the new that Jesus makes of us. And so as we go to Matthew chapter 22, I'm going to begin reading in verse, I'll actually start in verse 34 um, to give us just a, a brief amount of context. Matthew records, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. You know, if I were to use the statement like a fish out of water, we would pretty well all understand that I was referring to something outside of its natural habitat or its intended habitat because a fish was created to live in water. And when a fish gets out of water, it's only a matter of time before its living will cease. And if we go into uh, Genesis From the very beginning, we see that God created people to live in relationship with Him. But sin enters the picture and it separates us from God. And theologically, we can conclude that living in sin is the most unhuman way to live. Even though Paul talks about the natural man or the flesh and makes this Um, um, comparison between us in the flesh and us in the spirit, which is a reference to Christians versus non-Christians, so to speak, and the war that rages within us. When we look at a larger perspective on Scripture, we understand that the, the created intention of God, the way that He designed us, even in creation, was to know Him in relationship. And that was His will. 
Because we see that with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we also know this, that until God fills the human soul, it will be ruled by a ravenous, destructive, endless search. A great void, Billy Graham would say. Black hole that would not be satisfied with anything, but that would consume everything until God, through Jesus Christ, satisfied it. So this this understanding of being made new in Jesus Christ is what we can call truly human. It's what God intended in creation, and it's what He completed in redemption. Now last week, we considered that Jesus makes people a new creation to live as Christ followers with every created design, every uniqueness uh, that each individual has. It demonstrates God's intention for how it is that he wants us to live. And so living as a Christ follower means living out our true identity in the world by God's design for the demonstration of his glory. That's why God created us, to glorify him in every way, to every extent, in every realm, in every area of life. And in his glory is our good. And so today I want us to look at what it means to live in God's love. If we're made new to live in love and to walk in peace, what does it mean to live in this realm, if you will, of God's love? And I'm going to propose to you the first two aspects of our Christian identity, what it means for us to live in love as worshiper and servant. And here's what I want to walk I want you to walk away with today that Christians are made new by Jesus to live in God's love. Christians, Christ followers are made new by Jesus to live in God's love. Now, if you know me, you'll know that I'll use those terms Christian and Christ follower synonymously. In other words, I'm not trying to make a comparison, but I often like to use Christ follower because it has that active sense to it and it has kind of a verbal component to it. Christ followers. And so I like to use that term because I believe it denotes a sense of the movement of life, the activity, the action of our lives as Christians. And this passage that we begin with today is commonly known as the Great Commandment. It's the Great Commandment. It it was brought about not when Jesus walked on the earth, but rather it is the central passage for the Jewish people of the Old Testament, for Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 are the verses that Jesus was quoting in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. And that passage of Scripture was well known to the Pharisees who were being pejorative towards Jesus at the very least and just trying to create trouble nonetheless. And when they came to him, they said, full well knowing that central passage, but wanting to catch him in his own teaching, wanting to to bring some kind of evidence against him so they could disqualify not only his teaching, but who he was. And so they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, it's really not about the greatest commandment, but 
if you want to posture yourself this way towards me, then I'll respond in this way. You see, what this passage does is it captures a posture between the Pharisees and between Jesus. But for our day and time today, it captures very well a posture that is commonly held between what I would call religiously people, people who like to justify themselves by celebrating the rules and the laws that they're good at keeping. But Jesus said the problem is you justify yourself by the things you're good at while you neglect the weightier matters of the law, like loving other people, which you are horrible at. And you don't even think you need to improve on. (laughs) And that's what this posture was all about. But it also provides for us, friends, an essential understanding of what we call gospel centrality or Jesus centrality. In other words, the law is not just ink on paper, but rather it is the living truth of God's word. And that's what Jesus shows his Christ followers here. And that's how he wants us to understand it in knowing how it is that we relate to or know God. You see, God designed, he redeemed, and hear me, he commands his Christ followers to live in his love. You say, why would God command us to live in love? Because, hear me, if God didn't command it, we couldn't do it. Understand the essential nature of God's commands. If he didn't command it, A, we couldn't do it, and B, if by some freak aberration it did get done in us, it wouldn't do anyone any good. But through his commands, even the law of the Old Testament, God demonstrates his glory and his goodness. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You're trying to trip people up in your religious leadership by the technicalities But I want to show you the spirit that lives in God's word. And so I want us to see this morning, what does it mean for a Christ follower to live in love? What does it mean for a Christ follower to live in love? I think there's so many uh, perverted or skewed understandings of what it means to be a Christian. And they always do one of two things. They pit love against law or they pit love against justice Or they reduce justice with love, or they reduce righteousness and holiness by love. And they, in some way, say you have to separate the two. But but the, the argument I'm making today is that that couldn't be further from the truth. If God is love, and the word is his law, his command to us, then they must be in unity, or God is not one. And so the way we live our lives, Christians, speaks not just about what we believe, but to a greater extent, it speaks of who God really is and what we believe about Him. And so what Jesus does, instead of just reciting some cliche to help them feel better, He responds by citing the central law, the central command of the Old Testament and the central command of knowing God. Now, listen, this is not simply a best choice command because Jesus said it. Well, if Jesus said it, I'm going to go with it, right? 
Jesus said it because it was the central command of the Old Testament. And that's the point we need to understand. Jesus said it because of what God meant when he gave it. You see, God's command to love him with the whole of our being is the central command of all of Scripture. Hence the reason it was the central command for all of the Jewish people in the days of the Old Testament. And it is also the central command for living in God's love. That's why it's so important for, under, for us to understand. Jesus didn't come and create a quick plan B so things could be okay with God. Rather, the eternal God who from all eternity past has spoken truth that is eternal is revealing something to us through which our understanding must come into a complete knowledge of what God means when he tells us to love him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. In other words, the whole of our being expended all and only for the one who is God. And that brings us to the first aspect of our Christian identity, and it is that of worshiper. Worshiper. You see, worshiper is the first aspect of a Christ follower's identity as we are made new Because first and foremost, we are reconciled to God. What Christ has done for us in his substitutionary atonement, in dying in our place to make sacrifice and to make payment for our sin before God, was that he reconciled us to God where sin had separated us from God. You see, outside of Christ, you cannot even worship God. Because the only way you get to the throne of God to offer him worship is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so first and foremost, what took place in our being made new by Jesus Christ was that he corrected our relational status. You get that, right? Facebook is not the first place to record our relational status. They stole the idea. It's plagiarism. It absolutely is. Christ followers are, hear me, rescued enemies of God who've become children to live as co-heirs in God's love. You know, one of the reasons I think this is so important is because so often people who place their faith in Jesus want to receive God's salvation, but often severely doubt the depths and the gravity of his real love for us. And listen, God God doesn't just dole out love in pitying measures. 1 John says he lavishes us with love, like drinking from a fire hose, right? Except it doesn't hurt. He lavishes his love upon us. And so worshiper forms the first aspect of a Christ follower's new identity because we are now living, hear me, in right relationship with God. The knowledge of salvation, Scripture says. A worshiper is one who engages the heart, the center of their being, to focus on relationship and to grow in all-consuming love for God. 
a worshiper engages the heart to focus on relationship and grow in all-consuming love for God. You see, engaging the heart simply means the entirety of our life is immersed in knowing God. I love that song that speaks of God's love, it sings of God's love, and says, if God were to pen a letter of his love for us, you take the quill, and the oceans, the all of them, not just one of them, all of them, were his bottle of ink. He would drain it dry, speaking of his love for us, as we could our praise to him. That's beautiful, friends. That's the immersion of our whole life in God. You see, knowing God is not just simply an intellectual exercise. It's not even just an emotional fervor, but relationship that is established in His love purifies our love for Him through Jesus Christ. You see, this is what God wanted. God's desire is that we would glorify Him. And if we don't love Him, we can't bring glory to Him. And so relationship with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ is not one of many, but hear me, it is the one that defines all others. In other words, our relationship with God through the gospel isn't just something we accessorize our life with. It's the relationship upon which we center all that is our life. That's how important it is. And that's what Jesus was telling the Pharisees. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand today. When we say that he is the center of of our life. A worshiper lives to love God by faithful obedience to his commands. You say, well, why would you go immediately to obedience, Lane? Because listen, a worshiper understands that relationship with God is all because of him. In other words, who he is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. And we know that real love only because he loved us and sent his son to save us or to make us new, if you will. And listen, we think in our day and time today, and also in our, I'll say, our sinful bent, we think of obedience as some kind of obligatory adherence. But scripturally, that's not what obeying God is at all. And when we think of it that way, we can know that our sinful nature is conditioning, deceiving as it darkens our mind more than the truth of God's word is lightening our mind and the spirit illumining our understanding. You see, God says that the first way we love him is to obey his commands. Why? Because his word is life. His word is life, friends. And, and, and obedience is a love-compelled response to love with love. That's what obedience is all about. If you've heard my testimony, you, you know that, that the kind of defining label of my life has been a rebel with a cause. I, I mean, I, I knew it. That's the, the worst part about it is when I was running from God, I knew I was running from God. And that only intensified my fervor to run farther. That's sin, friends. That's called being ruled by sin. Rebellion against God is the essence of sin. And it is the essence of being unloving. But, but worship 
in obedience is a love-compelled response to God and the love that he's given to us with our whole lives, the love that he has put within us. You see, worshipers love God not in the way that we want to, right? You've tried that with other people. Honey, I thought you would love a new dishwasher for our anniversary. No, you didn't, but you bought it anyway, right? That's not love. Ladies, that deserves an amen. Right? We don't love God in the way that we want to. Why? Because that's the wrong way. It's not a right way to love God. We don't love God in the way that we think is best. Well, he can like it or not. But rather, God's not left it unclear how he is to be loved. Worshippers love God as he has clearly said he is love. Obedience to his commands. That's the whole point of scripture. Living, friends, in the realm of love as worshipers first means loving God through obedience to his commands. That's what it means to live in the realm of love. A love that has come to us in such a way that it has compelled a love in us to return to the one who has loved us. The gospel brings us into relationship with God through Jesus Christ to live in his love as worshipers, growing an all-consuming love for God through obedience. But Jesus did something else that was not being done, had never been done before. And Jesus combined in this passage two laws. As a matter of fact, it's not only that it had not been done before, but the very point that Jesus was making was, you've highlighted the laws you like, and you've cut out the ones you don't like. Because Leviticus 19.18 says, love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, what Jesus is doing here is not creating a new rule or standard. He's just quoting the Old Testament. I <laughs> see, I love that. Let me tell you why I love that. Because it doesn't divide our Bible between the Testaments. It unites it as a thread that runs not just from the beginning to the end, but as the Scripture is written in the beginning and the way that Moses begins to script those words is from an eternal framework and the way that John completes the revelation at the end is not to put a period on the sentence of God speaking, but rather to put a sentence on our capacity to capture God speaking so that we might understand God's word is forever. And that's the thread that Jesus runs through the whole of Scripture is to say this is the eternal word of God. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two, all the law hangs. All the law hangs. So he immediately follows the first command with another. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And what he does is his action gives an equal weight to this command alongside the first. And he showed what it meant in order to know God's love. That's what Jesus is doing here. And God makes it clear for how it is that we show love to him. Love 
for God is demonstrated by two principal activities. First of all, trust him to obey his commands. John tells us that, 1 John 5, 3. So we trust him to obey his command as worshipers. And second, we love his children. John again comes back and reinforces and explains what Jesus says in his letter, chapter 4, verse 21. And this is what Jesus told the Pharisees. Here's what John states in chapter 3, verse 23 of 1 John. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, as worshipers, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And so this brings us to our second aspect of our identity, of that defining ethos of a Christ follower, and that is of a servant. As we are made new to live in God's love, we are made as worshipers and servants. Servant is the second aspect of a Christ follower's identity because God's purpose in salvation was to demonstrate his love to others. Mark 10, 45 makes this very clear in the life and the... Excuse me, let me try that word again. It's a big word. Here it comes, ready? In the life and encompassing mission of Jesus Christ. In other words, the purpose for Jesus' coming, Mark records as this, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's great love was revealed through Jesus' life as a servant. And so John says, serving, serving is the real expression of love. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, 1 John 3, 18 says. Those who have been saved by Jesus live as servants to show God's saving love. And so we understand how it is that servant parallels worshiper in the way that we live in God's love, in relating to God by loving Him in the way He has loved us, with the whole of our being directed to the whole of His being, but also to live in the world where he has left us to show the love that we've been radically changed by to all of those in whom we come into contact with. Servants engage the hands. These things right here. That's a figurative statement. But it addresses how we act, how we live out, how we do what we do. Servants engage the hands to focus on expression of this new life in Jesus in order to show God's love by meeting needs in His name. That's what it means to serve, is just to meet a need. You need that done? I'll do that. You see, engaging the hands represents the labors that we, had, that we do to express the, the unique and distinctive strengths and skills and talents and gifts as a practical expression of love. And this word serve, it holds a strong connection to love in the Bible. As a matter of fact, you can almost use them interchangeably every time. When it says serve the Lord, what does it mean? It means you're loving the Lord. And when it says love the Lord your God, serving Him is a critical expression of that. In other words, what we experience in love from God is best demonstrated through our serving in the world. But servant, friends, hear me, is so much more than only acts that we do. Because in our understanding 
of our lives being made new and in our living in this love of God. Here's what we understand, that the righteousness of Christ has been placed on us before God, but the reality of sin remains in us as we live in this world. And as we live in God's love, there is no imperfection upon us in God's eyes. And we are working out the reality of that pure love in our hearts and lives as we live in the world through serving. Through serving. To show His love. You see, servant is more than only acts we do. Rather, it expresses the humility like Jesus in all that we do. So it's not only what we do, but it's how we do what we do. That serving best shows love. And so serving demonstrates love for God as we humble ourselves and we place others first in order to obey Jesus' command and to model His example. You see, when God brought His love to earth, Jesus came in the form of a servant, right? If I said, hey, uh, God's love came to earth, how? Most every Christian would say, servant, or through Jesus, right? And when I would say, okay, Jesus showed himself on the earth as a, most everyone would say, servant. But when we look at love and serving, so often we just want to disconnect the two, right? And that's not what God has intended. As a matter of fact, the very central message and good news of the New Testament is that a servant came to love us. And that's who we are created and recreated in Christ to be. When Christ followers live in God's love as He intended, we transfer the value, the glory of God's love and eternal life as we've received it to make sure everyone in the world knows it through what we do and the way in which we do it. So living as a servant shows love for God by serving others. So living in love means that Christ followers live as worshipers and servants of God's love through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and so it causes me to ask for us today, why are these two aspects of our Christian identity important? And how is it that they relate in the realm of love as we live in God's love? And I'm so thankful that you've asked that question today because I have this um, illustration that I've developed. Some of you have seen it, and I know I can tell you're already impressed. Please don't give this away. Thank you for not doing that. This is a tennis ball. I don't play tennis, so I'm not going to need it after this. It's got a hole in it, so it wouldn't do any good anyway. This is paracord. took a lot of time to think this one up. But I want to show you something that you're going to be very familiar with. I want to illustrate for you centripetal and centrifugal force. Are you ready? Are you sure? Are your seatbelts in? Are you, are you buckled in? Because this is going to blow your mind. Are you ready? Here it goes. Do you see it? Are you sure? Do you, do you see it? If you don't shake your head, I'm not going to stop. All right. Centripetal and centrifugal force. The relationship between those two forces is a great analogy to help us understand the relationship between worshiper and servant living 
in God's love. And let me help you see that. You see, the relationship between these two forces demonstrates how it is that we live in God's love. Centripetal force is a component of force that acts on the body toward the center. In other words, centripetal force was created from the string in my hand as I spun the tennis ball, and the tennis ball had the centripetal force working upon it that was spinning it, but it was drawing it into the center, and that's why it was holding it in a perfect circle. That is the actual force that's taking place in that moment. But there is a secondary apparent force that's also taking place, and that's centrifugal force. You see, there was this force acting upon the tennis ball as it went around to move outward. If you've ever ridden a merry-go-round, you've experienced this. You hold the you hold on to the handle and you lean back and it makes you want to fly off and you actually will if you let go, right? That's centrifugal force. It is at the same time drawing into the center while apparently acting upon that object to press it away further and further out and if I were really talented I could hold the string and spin the ball and slowly let it out and let you see it getting further and further away because of centrifugal force here's the interesting thing there's only one force acting upon the ball scientifically and this is as far as I will go in my scientific explanation and I had to read all of this to get it The centripetal force is the only actual force that's in action. Centrifugal is an apparent force, not an actual force. You see, without centripetal force, there is no centrifugal force. And the centrifugal force that pushes the object out is only active when the centripetal force is in motion. In the relationship of centripetal and centrifugal, one force causes two equal and simultaneous responses of drawing into the center and moving out from the center. The principle of identity, the principle of a Christ follower's ethos is very simple from this analogy, friends. The one that centers your life will determine how you live out your life. The one that centers your life will determine how you live it out. Living in God's love means that His love draws us in to source our strength in relationship with Him. That's what it means to be a worshiper. And it sends us out supplied with strength to serve others. Servant. The strength of God's love drawing us in always creates an equal and opposite strength to go love others by serving. And the power of God's love that draws you in is the same power that sends you to serve and to show his love to other people. And this is how Christ's follower lives so that Christ sources our daily strength through him. Sometimes we think we have to live in seclusion with Christ, like there, like we have to run find a cave to live in. And there are times we need to retreat into him as our only refuge and the rock. There's no doubt about that. But those are special moments and special instances in the relationship, not the ongoing defining principle of relationship with God. 
You see, Christ followers are made new by Jesus to live in God's love. In other words, the reason he doesn't remove us from the earth when we get saved is because he's helped us or he's, he's, uh, he has uh, ordained that we would remain here for his purposes and for his glory. And living in God's love means that we understand this relationship between worshiper and servant. How we relate to God is inseparably linked with how it is that we serve others. And we cannot claim to love God and yet hate others. If we claim to love God but we neglect serving others, we create a harmful disconnect in what it means to love God. And hear me, the most harmful of disconnects that we create is the division in our thinking that James speaks of when we become double-minded, believing that we can call ourselves Christian but not live like it in the world. James says that means you're double-minded. You've got a mind for God and you've got a mind for yourself or the world. And that means none of it is really for God. You see, my pastoral prayer for today is this. Is, is that you'll understand God's design in redeeming love for you. To, to live in His love. To live in this realm of love and, and what that means. And that you'll make sure you're living in God's love. I want to take the remainder of our time, just a few minutes, to share three discernments with you to help you know that you are living in God's love. Three discernments. Discernment is a word that is key in this sermon's application. It just It's a word that means to cut, to distinguish, to perceive. And in the Christian life, the cut of discernment is the work of the Spirit's sword, applying God's word, His truth to us. As he illumines our understanding for when and for how we stray from his love. And also as he brings conviction to call us to repent and to return to God's love. And so for the remainder of our time, my aim is to help you discern, am I living in God's love? Discernment number one. God's love draws us to himself and sends us to others. Living in the realm of love means that God sources our strength to love others. We only know his strength when we spend regular time communing with him. And his word and the intake or the reading of his word and prayer communicating with him are the primary essentials for communion. If you pray without the word, you cannot ultimately honor God. Now, I'm not saying the Bible has to be open in front of you as you pray. You might recall from memory the Word of God. But I'm just simply telling you, if your prayers are based on you, your love to God is going to be what you want to give Him and not what He has said is a way to love Him. The Word and prayer are essential. And if the Word is yours and you love it as a literary document, but you don't know how to articulate it back to God and to read it so you can hear from God. And listen to me, this is one reason why people close the Bible and put it down and go, I, I don't get it, and walk away. You, you, you give the Spirit of God nothing to work with. The Spirit does not work by Himself. The Spirit works to illumine the Word. And all of the Spirit's work comes only from the source of Jesus because Jesus sent the Spirit into the world to bring to completion the work that he had already finished. 
Do not separate the word and prayer. They go hand in hand, and you handicap the Spirit of God in your life from being able to do His work in you if the Word's not present. When we find ourselves running after things in the world, we can know we're not living in love, but we're looking for love from the world in our activities and in our associations. See, word and prayer are primary essentials for communion. But hear me, corporate worship and fellowship also serve a vital role. Hear me, the Christian life is not Lone Ranger oriented. Yes, God saves us personally to a plural identity of the body Christ, the people of God. And so corporate worship and fellowship also serve a vital role. So we can't just run after the things of the world or we find ourselves not living in love but looking for love. When we find ourselves bunkering in the church, in other words, that bunkering, you know, bunkerites, we can know that we're not honoring God but rather we're using Him as an excuse to neglect others. I refer to the parable of the Good Samaritan here for this one. Three people passed the man, in the story Jesus told, three people passed the man who had been beaten by robbers. The first two were faithful servants in the church, except they weren't. Because you know if you're not loving other people, you're not really serving God, and faithfulness is, well, not an accurate description, right? But it demonstrates that our actions reveal much to us about how we're thinking regarding God and regarding self, and that our actions prove our love by serving, by serving. Remember, I'm talking about the Spirit of God in you, discerning for you and with you the will of God. And are you living in God's love? When you live in the realm of God's love, your strength for serving sources from to become an act of worship unto Jesus. And that's how they work together. Worship and communion with God bring greater insight, bring greater understanding, and bring greater appreciation for serving and for other people as our heart fills with gratitude. And so communing with God and serving faithfully as God has gifted you is vital for living in His love. That's the first discernment. Discernment number two. My identity in Christ is revealed as a, how I, by how I live as a worshiper and servant. Let me try that again. My identity in Christ is revealed by how I live as a worshiper and as a servant. Relationship with God is only established by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And salvation is a free gift of God that cannot be earned or achieved by any measure or accumulation of good works. But serving others always demonstrates my understanding of who I am because of Jesus and the health and the vitality of my relationship with God. Paul shows us uh, the, the value of good works in Ephesians 2.10 when he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, made new, created in Christ Jesus, made new, for good works. And these are good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And so God created, uh, his created and redemptive purpose for every Christ follower is to glorify him through good works. 
God's eternal plan for every Christ follower is, is to live in his love as a worshiper and a servant in this way. You see, living in God's love is a soul-satisfying confidence of God's will. So often we think of God's will as some kind of grand Christian scavenger hunt that we've got to go find. But rather, God's will is really very simply put forth, walk in obedience to his commands. And if you say, I don't know what he wants me to do in this area or this situation or this circumstance, walk in obedience in what you do know until he reveals what you're asking. Christian, the greatest joy and the greatest glory of life will always be found in the simple pleasure of obeying God. The third discernment. Serving often reveals my struggles and tests my faith in trusting God. Serving often reveals my struggles and tests my faith in trusting God. Friends, spiritual discernment through serving is not always enjoyable. But it does reveal areas of our life for the gospel to work redemption in us. I put forth the story in Luke 10 of Mary and Martha. They welcomed Jesus and Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. She grew angry at Mary because Mary was listening to Jesus teach. And she came to Jesus and said, Jesus, aren't you going to tell her to help me? And you know what Jesus said, Martha, you are distracted with many things. You are anxious and troubled. But what does he say? One thing is necessary. Mary has chose the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You see, friends, serving reveals our wrong belief and our false idols for something other than Jesus has become our one thing. Our one thing. Serving is that what I call gospel farming. It's the cultivating work of the gospel, finding good soil to take root, to grow, and to bear fruit in our lives. Serving often and regularly identifies false idols that we hold to and that we need to repent of more than it identifies conflicts of schedule or priorities that we need to reconcile. Two cautions and I'll be done. As you discern... Be careful that you never pit communion with God against serving others. As soon as you do that, you know sin is ruling your thinking in some area, in some way. God designed our worship and our service to work together. Number two, you can't make up for neglect in one aspect of your identity by overcompensating in another. When you try to substitute a lack of serving with a heightened passion for God and worship, your relationship will never satisfy the soul. You'll end up like Martha. You'll end up anxious about a lot of things, but neglecting the one thing. And when you try to substitute a growing relationship with God with more serving, serve out of your strength and your good works will only frustrate you. Friends, Christ followers are made new by Jesus to live in God's love. As the worship team returns, just remember this in that relationship as you discern God's will. That the way you understand your relationship with God will always be revealed in the way that you relate to other people. You've probably heard the old adage, hurt people hurt people. Forgiven people 
forgive people, right? People who've never been loved can't fathom love or loving others. But people who have been loved love people. Are you living a godly life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Lord, I know there's so much to think about, so many ways that life can highlight some different aspect of this today, but I pray that by your Spirit, you would give us clarity of understanding, conviction, both in regards to sin and righteousness, that we might trust you and follow you, and a joyful obedience to walk by faith in everything. Do that in this time, in Jesus' name.